Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2145 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 13 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style of narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As we continue our series today on the good news according to John the Apostle, if you remember last week, we had part one of yet another mock trial that Jesus presented himself as the defense attorney, where he argued with the prosecutors with six claims of why he is not only the Lord of the Sabbath, but indeed he is also equal with God. And today Jesus calls forth five character witnesses to take the stand to validate his six claims. Today's passage is John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47, and it's located on page 1655 of your Pew Bible. Now, I'm going to read it from the New International Translation because it flows a little better, or New Living Translation, I should say, because it flows a little bit better. Um, but you can follow along in the Pew Bible, or I've listed the verses on the, the bulletin insert today. So follow along as I read, starting with verse 31. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else who is also testifying about me, and I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was like the burning and a shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me the works to accomplish that they may prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe in me the one that he has sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. You refuse to come to me and receive life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love for you within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? First, let me back up just a little bit to add some context. Because most civilized cultures have maintained order throughout the human history by creating laws and then enforcing those laws through a court system. While these justice systems may vary widely, they undoubtedly have the same effectiveness 
that others do. Their purpose was basically the same, to discover the truth in any given manner. At least, that is the stated purpose of the court. But as we've seen ourselves from time to time, the truth is entirely subjective to the judge or the jury if they refuse to accept the facts. And while Jesus had not yet been literally um, drawn into court or hauled into court, he was nonetheless in this passage on trial before the Pharisees. The temple officials found this once crippled man, and they saw him breaking the tradition on the Sabbath. But that man, in turn, pointed to Christ and said in verse, chapter 5, verse 11, that man over there told me to pick up my mat and walk. Why don't you go after him? Then their initial confrontation only added to the list of what they had already of alleged crimes that Jesus had been committing throughout all of Israel. Jesus immediately accepted this responsibility for breaking the tradition that they had. And then, in addition to that, he claimed to be equal with God. In verses 17 and 18, John presents the dialogue between Jesus and the officials in a summary form, though. If you remember, I, as we started the book of John, I said John uses snapshots. It's not necessarily chronological history. He uses a snapshot to fit the narrative that he's writing here. And this is one of those cases where, although this is the first time in John he's presented before the Pharisees, this is not the first time the Pharisees have noticed that he's breaking their tradition by healing on the Sabbath. The Lord interaction with the religious authorities occurred over several days or weeks or even months. And verse 18 summarizes. And after this first confrontation, maybe months ago, we see that the temple officials are now pressing down on Jesus. John describes this extended time with verbs in an imperfect tense with a Greek language that uses to describe something that's ongoing, habitual, a repeated action in verse 18. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find ways to kill him. That means they were trying previous to that. For he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. So the officials were continually seeking all the more to kill him because he was frequently and repetitively breaking the Sabbath, calling God his own Father, and then making himself equal with God. Eventually, this growing tension is what led to what we have today, the drumbeat trial, they call it, the drumhead trial, where that drumbeat of his miracles and workings and breaking the Sabbath in their mind was starting to crescendo. Rather than hauling Jesus into court, though, the temple's officials brought the courtroom to him. They assumed their roles as judge and hoped that the jury of public opinion would be on their side. And last week we saw Jesus representing himself as the defense attorney. And last week, remember, I appointed each one of you as jury to make that final decision today. Their challenge was a declaration, or Jesus' challenge was a declaration of six truths in the form of bold claims of his deity in verses 19 through 30, which we looked at. His sudden shift in perspective, though, if you remember the last verse from last week, 
His shift in perspectives was from the third person where he was referring to himself as son of God or son of man. And then he started to say I in verse 30. And it marks a transition in his rebuttal and his arguments. In verse 30, it says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. So let's proceed to the courtroom scene again today. In the Jewish temple criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the Pharisees who investigate the crimes and the Sadducees who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Order in the court. Order in the court. Jesus called the Christ. Will you resume your testimony this morning? Now, having established his premise, Jesus began to call his witnesses to support those claims that he presented in last week's message. And before we close in verse 47, Jesus will have called five witnesses to the stand. If you'll look at your bulletin insert, I've given you those five witnesses in the corresponding verses. Let me go through those five really quick, and then we'll look at each witness. Witness number one is God the Father, verse 32 and verses 37 and 38. Witness number two that will come before the stand today will be John, that forerunner, verses 33 through 35. The third witness will be Jesus' miracles and his teachings and his wonders, signs and wonders they're called, in verse 36. And his witness number four will be the scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures that the Pharisees and scribes so held onto so tightly that they knew backwards and forwards so well, he's bringing the scriptures to the courtroom today as one of his, his witnesses, verses 39 through 44. And then Moses, the greatest of all prophets, it, it will be his fifth witness in verse 45 through 47. Now, Jesus opened his, his, his case quoting a guiding principle in the Jewish court procedure, which stems from the law in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. It says, but never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. You must always have two or three witnesses. And also in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts in the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in verse 31 of our passage today, Jesus clarifies his principles when he says, if I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. So his six claims last week were on his own behalf. And in order for those to be valid, he now needs to bring witnesses to support his claims. So Jesus knew that he had to have these additional witnesses to collaborate them. A defendant's testimony is not considered of value unless it is, un is supported by undisputed facts or reliable testimony. Moreover, the testimony must come from more than one witness. Jewish courts accepted corroborating testimony from multiple witnesses as indisputable proof, the truth that could not be denied. Jesus, will you call your first witness today? And witness number one is God the Father, verses 32 and 37 and 38. John, translating the Aramaic words of Jesus, could have chosen either one of two Greek words for someone else in this passage. Those two Greek words are alos or heteros. These two words are basically synonymous 
with a very slight nuance. Whereas heteros means someone of a different sort, alos means someone of the same sort. And of course, this someone else is the witness, God the Father. And without denying complete unity with the oneness of the Father, Jesus treated the Father's testimony as independent from his own. And the reason he did it, because Jesus was a stellar defense attorney here. He knew that if he brought this case up, that it could not be argued. Because without denying complete unity with the Father, Jesus' accusers, if they objected to that, they would be admitting that he and the Father were indeed one person. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying. So to admit it, they would have to agree with Jesus. But by failing to object to this, his accuser would have to receive this independent testimony of God the Father himself. The Almighty had to be logged into evidence. Now, Jesus referred to more than nine centuries of prophecies, which he had fulfilled precisely. He fulfilled the details of prophecies to every little point, and he had no control of the, over those prophecies, humanly speaking, such as the manner and the time and the place of his birth, as listed in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, or Jan, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, or Micah chapter 5, verse 2. His judges, and in some way the jury, included the scribes that were there today, men who had dedicated their lives to preserving the scriptures and had quite naturally become experts in the interpretation and application of the law. So they knew if Christ brought his father on as a testimony, as a witness, that they had to believe it, or they could deny it. The Pharisees devoted themselves to the meticulous obedience of the law, believing that moral purification of Israel would hasten the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. Unfortunately, like most of religious people, and even us at times, these men preserved and transmitted the truth, but they failed to live it themselves. God the Father, you may step down, bring up your next witness. Witness number two is John the Forerunner. Now earlier, the religious authorities sought out John the Baptizer because of his widespread ministry caused many Jews to begin looking in earnest for that long-awaited Messiah. His impact was so profound that few doubted his status of a genuine prophet of God, as we're told in Matthew 14 or Matthew 21, Mark 11 or Luke chapter 20. However, the excitement he stirred was so short-lived because if you remember when we talked about John the Baptist, he was the lamp, but he was not the light. He was the forerunner, but he was not the Christ. John completed his mission by introducing the Messiah, and then he stepped aside. In fact, if you read on about John, he was not only imprisoned, but he was beheaded, so God completely took him out of the picture. So there would be no doubt that there was one that they should be looking toward. But Jesus was not the Messiah Israel wanted. He came to establish a different kind of kingdom, not one that would raise an army, overthrow Rome, conquer the world, and usher Israel into a new golden age of power and of prosperity. At least not yet. That will come at Christ's second coming. Unlike the Messiah of self, their selfish expectations, the true Messiah came 
not to conquer Rome, but to conquer their hearts. He came to transform those hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, which would then beat in perfect rhythm with the law that's listed in Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel chapter 11. John, you may step down now. Jesus, bring up your next witness. Jesus' next witness, his number three witness, are the signs and the miracles, his teachings. And while John the baptizer was a powerful witness and the authentic voice of God, John the baptizer never performed a miracle, as we're told in John chapter 10, verse 41. Jesus, however, performed many miracles and signs and wonders all over the entire country of Israel, including the dramatic miracle that sparked this current trial event, this mock trial of the man who was lame for 37 years and Jesus healed him instantly and told him, pick up your mat and walk. And he did so. Those miracles could not be denied. The miracles do not establish the deity of Christ himself. Other mere mortals were empowered by God to accomplish supernatural works from time to time. However, the miracles had long been accepted as God's stamp of approval on the miracle worker themselves. Jesus' signs of authenticity in his message, I am equal with the Father, he said. And furthermore, the miracles were consistent with the characters and the plans of God. The signs and wonders can sit down now. Jesus, call up your next witness, which is the scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures. And for us to look back over 2,000 years, we have the entire biblical record, the entire word of God. Sometimes we forget that they only had the Old Testament scriptures and maybe only a few copies of that, and maybe not the entirety of that. But those scriptures are that witness that Jesus is bringing forth in verses 39 through 44. And the verb in 39, if you look at your insert, it says, you search the scriptures. And it can either be translated as a command or a statement. In some versions, elect to render this verb as a statement. However, if you read it in its context, it's as if Jesus is issuing a challenge to them and saying, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, Go search the scriptures for yourself. His point was twofold. First, Jesus challenged the anticipated conclusion that they would come to when they dared to search that message of the scripture at face value. If they remained intellectually honest, the Old Testament would lead them to conclude that Jesus was the Son of God. Second, the practitioners of religion Search the word of God's criteria for which they can merit their own salvation. But they failed to encounter the God himself, Jesus Christ, the word. And the word promised to give righteousness by grace, not by own works, through believing loyalty. And if you remember, I mentioned believing loyalty is once you have accepted Christ as your savior, then you'll be loyal to him and walk with him. That's believing loyalty. Your walk will mimic your talk that you've accepted Christ. He challenged the religious experts to continue their vain quest 
while alluding to the grave consequences of their stubbornness for not recognizing what the scriptures were clearly witnessing. Rather than reading the scripture as a means of knowing God, they made the law their own God. And Jesus supported his first accusations, first by contrasting his motivation with theirs, whereas he doesn't seek approval of men and thus implying that he seeks God's approval, the religious authorities daily sacrificed their love for God and traded it for their admiration of other people. Jesus then pointed to the absurdity of accepting teachers who made a name for themselves while rejecting the very one who glorifies the Father. The scriptures may sit down. Jesus, call your last witness. And witness number five is Moses. Verses 45 through 47. The fifth and final witness is none other than Moses. And why is this important? Because the man was revered by the Jews as their founding father of the faith and the greatest of all the prophets in their mind. Only the coming greater prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that Messiah would surpass the greatness of Moses. However, it was the writings of Moses, the temple's officials twisted in their own religious mind and works and perverted the laws of Moses to become a means for rejecting that greater prophet, the Christ. If you'll recall that Jesus Supposed violations of Moses' law of healing on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath, is what drew them to this courtroom in the first place because they were accusing him of breaking the law. Moses, you may sit down. Jesus, proceed with your testimony. So why didn't the religious leaders believe these witnesses to be the truth of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus points to two interrelated reasons or obstacles. First of all, they were unwilling to believe in verses 40 through 43. Accepting Jesus as the Son of God is not an intellectual problem. It's a crisis of will. It's our heart problem. What are we going to choose? Unfortunately, like many court cases in history, the judge and the jury only received those facts supporting the foregone conclusion and then they cast the others aside. The second reason or obstacle was that they were too proud in verses 43 through and 44. Pride is that secret virtue of all religions. The glory is its reward. Those who receive man-made righteousness would rather reject the truth of God and his grace than to give up their own glory and pride. The religious leaders rejected Jesus not because they were unable to believe because they were unwilling to believe. Inability to believe the results from, it results from a dull mind. And if you'll remember, even the disciples, Jesus said, why are you so dull of mind? They struggled to overcome that dullness for much of Jesus' earthly ministry. The Lord is remarkably patient with us and our weaknesses. As John illustrates in the next segment that we'll go into next week in his narrative, that... Jesus is patient with us continually, although we are so ignorant and so slow to believe. On the other hand, the unwillingness to believe is the result of our pride. 
The pride invariably leads all of us to destruction. So what's the application of this passage for today? Well, we see we have five reasons or five witnesses that we've brought to the stand. We've seen two obstacles in that they were unwilling to believe and they were too proud to believe. But then we'll look at the one way that must be chosen or rejected by all. Jesus gave the Pharisees six claims to believe that he was the Son of God last week. He brought forward five character witnesses to support their six claims. So now he has a legal court system where his claims are supported by the witnesses. And those authorities were the very authorities that the Pharisees have chosen to respect. But then they rejected them in this case. Yet despite this, the unrefu- despite this unrefutable evidence proving Jesus' deity, the Pharisees remained unmoved. And we need to be on the lookout for such people through our lives. Some are genuinely curious about Jesus Christ, and their questions become an opportunity to lead them to faith. As the verse Paul read in the children's message, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. If someone asks you about the hope of you, your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But don't be fooled. Not every debate with somebody about spiritual matters is prompted by their curiosity. More often than not, a religious debate is really, merely a ruse to show forth their rebelliousness, rebellion. And we see this online so much anymore, where people will argue just for argument's sake, and a lot of it does center around Jesus Christ and religious issues. People will engage you in a debate for no other purpose than just to challenge the truth, not to understand, not because they're seeking to understand or believe. In part, it's a clever game that they're playing with themselves. Their goal is of debating a believer is to pretend that they have good reasons to continue on their lifestyle as they are without changing. If the Christian's defense and they can't refute their objections, then it offers them a compelling reason to continue as they are. In reality, they cannot tolerate the Christian's firm belief that God and not humanity controls the universe and our destiny. And by the end of the debate, a Christian is exhausted while the person who's rebellious is vindicated, at least for a while. But soon they fall, find somebody else, they're compulsively engaged to try to prove themselves because they can't really prove it. They find another unwary believer to argue with and driven by the same need of the proverbial boy who's walking past the graveyard at night whistling because they don't want to face the truth of what's in that graveyard. I hear seven ways when a rebel wants to play convert me if you can scenario with you. If a person challenges to engage with a negative opinion about God or some theological concern, they expect you to talk it out with them. For example, God doesn't care about people or he would end all suffering. Second scenario is a person presents a theological conundrum without a definite answer. Well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus Christ? Although if you fully know the scriptures, you know the heavens declare his handiwork. So no one is without excuse. 
The third one is the person presumes to judge the goodness of God by human standards and particularly by their own standards. An example, I can't believe in a God who would send someone to hell because they just don't understand the full aspect of scriptures. The person tries to convince you that your faith is irrational and that God does not exist. Fifth, a person might shift the conversation to another topic when you begin making headway on the one that you're currently on. Six, a person might become angry or belligerent, and then they resort to name-calling. Well, you see this on, online so much today, where they just bash each other, and that's no way to win an argument. And seventh, the person wants to compare their qualifications with yours so that you cast doubts on your qualifications. But no one is qualified unless they know God's holy word. Now, if you suspect that you're in a debate with a, a person who's just being rebellious, just politely end that conversation. There's no reason to continue it. You might offer your reasons for bowing out, but the temptation to continue is so enticing. Don't each of us love a good argument? And we want to prove our own way because we want to be right. But don't do it. Don't fall into that trap. You can only argue to a stalemate at best. It's not a challenge of intellect. It's a challenge of our will. If you must leave them with something, leave them with your personal testimony of when you accepted Jesus Christ and leave them with a life that walks according to God's word. The fruit of the Spirit is radiant in your life. That will have a bigger impact on them than anything you might claim to tell them. On the other hand, curiously generous, Genuine people will listen rather than argue with you. They may question and challenge what you're saying, but they're receptive and humble, not argumentative and brash. They accept some questions, just simply cannot be answered. And they respect you if you say, well, I just don't know the answer to that. I'll have to study it more and get back with you. They respond with positively, positively with, to empathy whereas rebels are unaffected by compassion. And best of all, those who are truly curious people, the conversation can naturally flow into the presentation of the gospel to them. Of course, not everyone acts on the good news immediately. You may be a planter, planting the seeds of faith. You may be a waterer, watering that garden. Someone else may reap that harvest. Ultimately, we have no control over whether somebody is saved or not. Only God, through his Holy Spirit, wooing them, can draw a person to him. So today, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what is your verdict now that the defense case has been presented? And we go back. what we looked at last week. You have a choice. Each one of us have a choice. We can choose to reject Christ as a deity, saying he's not the son of God. I don't believe in him. He was just a man. But if he was a man and claimed to be God's son, then he's either a liar trying to deceive people, or he's a lunatic because he thinks he's God's son and he's out of his mind. But if we choose to accept Christ as the son of God, and he is deity, you still have two choices. 
You're going to choose, choose to rebel against him and saying, yes, I believe he was the son of God, but I choose to reject him. I don't think I need him for salvation. Or you can trust in him. All of us have that choice. So the decision tree, reject deity, accept deity. If you reject it, he's a liar or a lunatic. If you accept it, you either rebel against his call or you trust in him for salvation. And that's the choice we have in this passage out of John, last week and this week's message. So what is your choice? Members of the jury, you decide whether Christ is who he says he is and trust in him or you reject him. And that is a choice that each of us must make. Next Sunday, we change locations. Remember, John is a picture book of scenes of Christ's ministry. And next week, we transport up to the Sea of Galilee once again. And we'll look at God's speciality, his specialty, and that is impossibilities. The God of the impossible. So I'd ask you to read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21 in preparation for next week's message. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us. We thank you for your blessings that you pour out on us every day. We thank you for this passage that you've given to us in your word, how you testified as to your own claims, and then you brought the witnesses in to support those claims that we are without excuse. It's not an intellectual choice. It's a crisis of will because the facts are there. It's up to us to either choose them, to accept them, or to reject them, Father. We thank you for the salvation that you've give, given to us, that we can accept you as our Lord and our Savior, that we can have eternity in heaven with you, Father. We thank this, thank you, and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.